Hi and welcome to Infatuated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca and today we have a very special guest. We are so (laughs) excited to welcome our first ever guest, our friend from university and fellow writer Stephanie Coatsier. So Emily, tell everyone how it's going to work today. Yes, so the format will probably change depending on who the guest is, but today Stephanie is taking over the infatuation. She's going to tell us what she is infatuated with and then we're going to have a bit of a writing chat. We're answering quite a few questions that you guys have asked us over the last few months, more specifically about studying creative writing at uni and then we are going to do a quick fire favourite and a question as usual. Yay! Sounds good. Let's (laughs) dive in. Well, normally this is the part where I'd ask Emily what she's infatuated with, but since we're doing things a little bit differently this week, Stephanie, what are you infatuated with? Well, Rebecca and Emily, this week (laughs) I'm infatuated with The Priory of the Orange Tree by Samantha Shannon. And you guys will know I've been infatuated with this book for two months now, maybe? Mm -hmm. Like, it's been a long time and I can't stop talking about it. I'd heard of The Priory of the Orange Tree for, like, a really long time. It'd been out for about a year. It was published in 2019. And it had been, like, on my radar for a while because I love fantasy and everyone that I follow on, like, Twitter and stuff couldn't stop talking about it. People kept writing reviews. And I'd heard it referred to as a feminist Lord of the Rings. And that actually, bizarrely, for someone that does consider themselves a feminist, it bizarrely kind of put me off a bit. Yeah, it was probably the same. Yeah, just because I was like, how are you, how is she going to do that? Is it going to be like the stereotypical, like, oh, a woman wields a sword, so she's feminist, you know? And I couldn't really be, that wasn't really my vibe, so I thought. Second reason that kind of put me off the book originally was it's massive, it's 800 pages, and I just don't have that time commitment. Then fast forward, fast forward to the world, like, basically collapsing, um, <laughs> and I suddenly have a lot of free time. So I decided finally now was the time to pick up The Pride of the Orange Tree. And I'm so glad I did because it literally broke me out of a reading rut. Mm. And I'm actually amazed that I didn't pick it up sooner considering my interests. The reason that I absolutely love it, and Emily will be able to tell you this from all of our writing (laughs) chats, is it's focused on dragons. And I am infatuated with dragons for some reason. Dragons are dope. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they are. It's basically just built around a world that's divided over their opinions on dragons essentially so in a basic summary the west hate dragons the east worship dragons like gods there's also the southern part of the world that they're more concerned with magic and actually slaying dragons so the whole Mm -hmm. book is kind of surrounded by this premise that there are dragons in the world they're very powerful but people have differing opinions on them and that is based off of the world's religion. Okay. Mm-hmm. What I found really interesting is, as much as I can, I can understand why people pulled parallels with Lord of the Rings, obviously, and that it's got the wise dragon trope, which I love <laughs> <laughs> so much. Your face just lit up when you. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're so cool. <laughs> 
like it's a wise dragon how can you not love it but anyway i can see why people obviously compared it but that's not apparently what it's even based off of originally it's not really where she got her inspiration from samantha shannon said that it's a feminist retelling of saint george and the dragon which in basic um, terms of the tale is just that saint george slayed a dragon who was going to eat a princess because he was what was it called when you're not bloodlust is it bloodlust yeah like when you're just violent <laughs> Yeah, 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 when you're just violent, you just want blood, you just want bones, like, <laughs> you sort of kill everything in sight. So um, he's like, wait, is this a kink-shaming thing? <laughs> I know. <laughs> She's like, is this the word? <laughs> oh, Rebecca, oh, I've missed you. <laughs> so, basically, the whole tale of St. George and the Dragon is that there's this blood-lusting dragon who just wants to constantly have human sacrifices and nothing will quench its thirst essentially and eventually they offer the sacrifice of a princess and then obviously St George comes in slays the dragon, woohoo, he saves the damsel in distress and Samantha Shannon decided no, I'm not going to have that, I'm going to have it where the damsel kills the dragon and the knight is a wee wimp (laughs) and I love that (laughs) love it It's honestly right, I can't stress enough how it's a massive book so see trying to condense the plot (laughs) without spoilers because there's so many good plot twists in it like it keeps you going but trying to condense this plot down is so difficult but essentially the world's religion is built on their opposing opinions to dragons and in the west there's the kingdom of virtudom which houses the house of berifnet with queen sabrin the whole story surrounding Queen Sabrin is that she is descended from a knight called Sir Galleon and a damsel in distress called Cleoland. Galleon basically bounds this dragon called the Nameless One in a place called the Abyss and saves Cleoland, who was going to be sacrificed to the dragon. So that's what the Kingdom of Virtudom believes. But as you go further in the book, the story is basically told with several different narrators and all of their decisions start to impact each other really slowly and then just come together and come to a head at the end Mm. and we meet Eid who becomes Queen Sabrin's lady-in-waiting and she's actually secretly a mage or a witch really sent to protect Queen Sabrin and the kingdom of Virtudom because if she dies then people lose a religion because the whole religion of the place is built on the fact that Queen Sabrin has to have a female heir and that's what keeps the line going and that then stops the dragon coming back. It's, it's a very like... Oh, that's a cool symbolism. <laughs> it's cool It's cool having like a female heir type thing but it soon becomes apparent that's not really the case. That I don't want to say too much obviously because again you could... It's not really a spoiler. Emily, you'll know. You've read it. It's not Yeah. It's not super duper spoiling it, but essentially you start to see the cracks in the religion of the House of Berifnet. And mm. Sabrin's under a lot of pressure to conceive a female heir so that the nameless one doesn't become unchained from the abyss and essentially continue another grief of ages because originally there was a grief of ages before where the dragons just kind of killed everyone in sight. And then supposedly this knight <laughs> banished him. But then 
Eid's religion is that Cleoland, so this was the damsel, mm-hmm. Eid actually references her as the mother. So it's actually really interesting in that sense. Like if you look at the kind of, even just the fact that in one religion, in one part of the world, she's referred to as the damsel and in another, the mother. Mm. You know, because that's two very different types of women. And I don't know. And the mother image was powerful because she birthed this whole religion and house of magic, essentially, because they Mm. believe that Cleoland is actually the one that banished the nameless one and that Sir Galleon, the knight, they call him the deceiver because he basically created this whole religion for himself and basically called himself this great dragon slayer when he knows for a fact that it was actually Cleoland the whole time. So, you know, typical man yeah. in that way. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but... They always just take their credit for the dragons that you slay. I know what's <laughs> <laughs> And it's just really interesting watching, you know, Ede navigate the court of Queen Sabin because she would burn anyone that disagreed with her and said that Cleoland wasn't a damsel in distress, which is so bizarre to me to think about because she's technically descended from them both and she's like, yeah, she was a damsel in distress, it was all Sir Galleon and then she's led to believe her whole life that she has to have an heir, otherwise the whole kingdom will, will fall. So it's very interesting for exploring like kind of female relationships in that sense. But I do have a passage that I thought I could read that might explain it better. Go for it. <laughs> if he's one. It might be quite long. Yes. Just for context, Eid is basically suspected by the other ladies in waiting that she doesn't believe the religion of virtuedom. Mm. And she's trying to get her caught out by Queen Sabrin. So she says to Eid to tell the story of the nameless one's banishment by Sir Galleon. So that's just the context for you. Eid breathed in, steadying the royal within her. If she told the true story, she would doubtless face the pyre. She would have to tell the tale she heard each day at Sanctuary, the butchered tale, half a tale. There is a womb of fire that churns beneath this world, she began. Over a thousand years ago, the magma within it came suddenly together, forming a beast of unspeakable magnitude as a sword takes shape within the forge. His milk was the fire within the womb, his thirst for it was quenchless. He drank until even his heart was a furnace. Catherine shivered. Soon this creature, this worm, grew too large for the womb. He longed to use the wings it had given him. Having torn his way upward, he broke through the peak of a mountain in Mentadon, which is called Dreadmount, and brought with him a flood of molten fire. Red lightning flashed at the summit of the mountain. Darkness fell upon the city of Galhaga, and all who lived there died choking on pernicious smoke. There was a lust in this worm to conquer all he saw. He flew south to Lazia, where the house of Ongenu ruled a great kingdom and settled close to their seat in Yakala. Eid took a sip of ale to wet her throat. This nameless creature carried a terrible plague, a plague no humans had ever encountered. It made the very blood of the afflicted burn, driving them mad. To keep the worm at bay, the people of Yakala sent him sheep and oxen, but the nameless one was never sated. He lusted after sweeter flesh, human flesh, and so each day the people cast their lots and one was chosen as a sacrifice. All was silent in the room. 
Lazia was ruled then by Selenu, high ruler of the House of Ungenu. One day, his daughter, Princess Cleoland, was chosen as the sacrifice. Eid spoke that name softly. Though her father offered his subjects jewels and gold and pleaded with them to choose another, they stood firm, and Cleoland went forth with dignity, for she saw that it was fair. On that very morning, a knight from the Isles of Inchka was riding for Yakala. At the time, these Isles were riven by war and superstition, ruled by many over-kings, and its people quaked in the shadow of a witch. But many good men dwelt there, sworn to the virtues of knighthood. This knight, he'd said, was Sir Galleon Berifnet, the deceiver. That was a name he now had in many parts of Lazia, but Sabrin had no idea of that. Sir Galleon had heard of the terror that now abided in Lazia, and he wished to offer his services to Selenu. He carried a sword of extraordinary beauty. Its name was Ascalon. When he was close to the outskirts of Yakala, he saw a damsel weeping in the shadow of the trees, and he asked why she was so afeard. Good night, Cleland answered. Thou art kind of heart, but for thine own sake leave me to my prayers, for a worm doth come to claim my life. It sickened Eid to speak of the mother in this way, as if she were some swooning waif. The night she pressed on was moved by her tears. Sweet lady, he said, I should sooner plunge my sword into my own heart than see thy blood water the earth. If thy people will give their soul to the virtues of knighthood, and if thou giveth me thy hand in marriage, I will drive this fell beast from these lands. This was his promise. Eid paused to gather her breath, and suddenly an unexpected taste entered her mouth, the taste of the truth. Cleland told the knight to leave, insulted by his terms, she found herself saying, but Sir Galleon would not be deterred, determined to win glory for himself. He, no Sabrin cut in. Cleland agreed to his terms and was grateful for his offer. This is as I heard it in the south, Eid raised her eyebrows, even as her heartbeat stumbled. Lady Rosaline asked me too, and now your queen commands you otherwise. <laughs> so I think that was really good just for showing you that like, the kind of, I don't even know the, the difference in their religions, but how Eid actually struggles to even refer to Cleland as a damsel in distress. Yeah. Also, can I just say well done for all the pronunciations? Because... Oh. Man. They're hard. <laughs> I, for, I did forget to put a disclaimer that I'm going to butcher it. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just ask? Yes. See that it. one, the house of Ingenue or Ingenue uh-huh. that you said? Is that yes. spelt like the word? How's that spelt? I need to <sighs> so know this. O N J E N Y U. Okay. I didn't know if it was. Because <laughs> it sounds like. It sounds like ingenue, which is like the French word, and it means like naive heroine. Mm. Oh, maybe that's where. See, which Samantha... I thought would be a good pun. Well, Samantha <laughs> Shannon's very interested in that sort of thing because I follow her on Twitter, and she's always kind of explaining, you know, like the different names of her characters. So, to be honest, I actually wouldn't put that past her. A Hollywood ingenue is an actress who plays a damsel in distress in old Hollywood film. I did not know that. So there you go. Ah, learn something new yeah. every day. That's so clever. <laughs> I want that to be intentional because that's so clever. <laughs> I honestly would not put that past her. I think I'm going to have to research that now after this call, but... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go on. I just needed to know that. No, that's all right. I think that's really all I'd had to say on that was just that 
it was basically showing you that how divergent their beliefs were were all based off mm. the same story and it all comes back to this idea of Samantha Shannon having a feminist retelling of St George and the Dragon which I love I love when authors take old tales and they twist it like that yeah I think it's interesting how she's Sabrin's part of this like kind of like a matriarch like it's obviously like the female heir that is important but it comes from the fact that she was a damsel it seems really back like backwards you'd think the way that they try and tell that religion that it would be oh you need a male heir because the knight is the one that slayed the mm, yeah. the dragon you know but yeah i think it's i don't know i love how she's done that she's kind of twisted the expectations a bit and you sort of are reading it thinking oh this is really cool this is really like powerful and feminist because you know it's it's the women that are ruling and it's like but actually she's kind of being forced into yeah <laughs> having to have an heir and it's it all gets a bit muddled it's very like internalized misogyny as well isn't it where she's like, yeah. she's like no but this is this is the right thing because as a woman i have to do this yeah and then you're like oh honey no yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should totally read it rebecca because Without saying too much about that, obviously there comes a point where Sabrin has to face the fact that she needs to birth an heir, and she's actually got a fear of that as well. She's got a fear of the childbed. So it's like, that all comes to a head, and what follows in all her relationships afterward are very interesting, and I will not say more because it is a spoiler. <laughs> I will I will maybe read it. I'm not going to promise to because I have the attention span of a gnat. Yeah. Um, it is massive. And it is the size of my head. <laughs> <laughs> but I, if I if I decide that I want, you know, a doorstop book, I'll I'll that one. <laughs> I think Another thing that I'd said in passing to people when talking about this book as well is that there's a lot of subtle feminism in the fact that in this world, apart from the whole giving birth to an heir, gender doesn't really come into it in any other way. Like It's not a question when you've got a guard who's a female, for example, and sometimes I get so tired in books when it's like, oh, you can't do that because you're a woman. And I'm like, oh. And it's... Because it's a fantasy book, but it's based on a queendom, you would forgive Samantha Shannon for maybe looking back at old historical tropes when, you know, women didn't have as much to do in society, you know? Like, mm. you would you would forgive the fact that all the guards are male. It's just not something that would enter your head. And, I mean, that's internalised for us all, I think. But then when I was reading it, she would mention the guard and say she took out her sword and it was never like no character ever looked at a female guard and went oh she's female or anything like that mm. and I just liked for me I liked reading a world like that where it just wasn't a question it like mm. it didn't come into anyone's heads they just were because yeah. they were you know I liked that all the ladies in waiting or like the ladies of the bedchamber and all that they all had weapons yeah um, <laughs> because obviously it's important that this queen is kept alive or else you know big dragon comes to end the world um <laughs> so like even the fact that her ladies in waiting all have knives under their dresses it's like that's so cool <laughs> yeah we love a bit of practical feminism you know <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also like 
anyone that has a knife and a dress in the same outfit is automatically probably the coolest person in the room. So if if they all have that, (laughs) it's a pretty cool room. Yeah. Do they not have... Or maybe it's just Eads, but I... she has like her corset, but she has like yeah. knives in the corset. Uh huh. Yeah, she <laughs> like, puts knives in her corset. What a badass! Yeah, <laughs> it's honestly like trying to summarize a book this good with as many plot twists as it has and eight hundred pages is so difficult because you're like I'm like not even scratching the surface of why it's such an amazing book and why I absolutely loved it. But that was one key reason for me, and even the female characters they're all so different and all the characters in general actually are so different and I'd said at the beginning the story's told from like different narrators and all their decisions affect each other and you slowly see it build up towards them meeting but what I loved about that and what me and Emily are kind of talking about this as well in regards to writing is building three-dimensional characters and how important that is, you know, that you don't just have your main protagonist, your antagonist, everyone else is just a plot device. Mm. And in Samantha Shannon's world, every character that you met, the more that you got to know them through their own internal narration, the more you started to understand their decisions, but you also started to feel like a mixed bag of feelings. Like, there's not one character in this book that I would say is solely good and is solely bad. Mm. and Mm. your opinions are constantly changing and you're not actually quite sure who you're rooting for and quite often when these characters meet you're not sure what character you want to kill the other you just know (laughs) that someone's gonna (laughs) it sounds almost like when you play I used to play these like video games that were not like games because you don't really do anything it was just like the decision making ones where you like Mm. pick an option and then it like but so there was this one called the novelist and it was like you played a family and there was the the mom the dad and the kid and every time that you were in one of their heads and you were being presented with all these options of something to do you are thinking like i really want to root for the character whose head i'm in right now but you'd mm. know from playing the one of the other characters like 5 minutes ago that like if i do this that's going to really fuck them up so you're yeah. like, I don't know who I'm. I don't know who I want to win here. <laughs> I want the whole family to win. Yeah. yeah, I felt like that throughout the whole book. I was like, I want you to die. No, I want you to die. I want you to kill him. No, I want you to kill him. Like, <laughs> see, there's an alchemist in it called uh, Nicholas, and he is banished from the court by Queen Sabrin because he promises her that he can make her an elixir of eternal life, and obviously she w- wants that because if she can't have an heir how else is she gonna protect her line you know so and Nicholas does genuinely believe that he could do it but he just kind of also in Sabrin's mind he preys on her vulnerability and then when she demands to have this elixir of life after years and he's not got it for her she banishes him out of the kingdom and so at the start of the book Nicholas is already banished right so when you first meet him he's a really bitter old man and he wants Sabrin to die because she banished him Sabrin hates him because she thinks he preyed on her and then throughout the book they live their separate lives and at the end they come together and to be honest like I think Emily you'd agree when you're reading Nicholas's point of view 
often you think he's such a despicable old man and you you want him (laughs) to get his comeuppance but then at the end you feel sorry for him and I just think that's the sign of a really good writer is that someone that could make you feel contradicting emotions toward a character simultaneously Mm. Um, and the whole book's like that so I really think that's good It's, it's not like a book of good versus evil everyone's got their own narrative you know everyone's a hero of their own story so I think that's a really good bit about the book is it's three-dimensional characters yeah although she kills some of them off which yeah, well, we're gonna mention is um, <laughs> an emotional ride <laughs> <laughs> one of them's so sudden that you're like wait what no, oh, no. I know exactly what one you mean yeah <laughs> because it made me cry <laughs> Emily me- messaged me after this character died and she was like what Stephanie what and I was like I'm sorry I didn't write it I feel like that's something that's so particular to like the fantasy genre because I don't feel like that really yeah. happens in any other genre but like Emily will always just be randomly sobbing and I, like I'll be sobbing because I'll be like this person's so misunderstood by the people in their lives and Emily will be like this one's dead <laughs> they straight up died and I'm like oh I don't face those problems in my books it is an emotional ride reading fantasy I would agree yeah <laughs> another thing that I would say that I loved about the Priory and I touched on this and it's the main thing that I always talk about is the wise dragon trope but I would be interested to know just from like your listeners and stuff as well because like anyone that's a fan of fantasy because I was reading a briefly about it and people are starting to say that the wise dragon trope is overdone in fantasy. And I just think that'd be quite an interesting question if people agree, because I personally don't think so. I, like, I think some tropes are there for a reason, and I think that's one of them. And, I mean, it's in Prior of the Orange Tree as well, and it worked really well for me. But I just thought that'd be mm. an interesting question, as if people believe that the trope of the wise dragon should just die off. Like, why do they have all the wisdom and they've been alive for thousands of years? I'm just thinking about that like while you're finding the page I'm like I don't maybe it's that I don't read enough high fantasy but I don't think I come across wise dragons very often. I think people are referring Mm. to like I always jump to Lord of the Rings obviously in my head in the hobby yeah and I think that really Marilyn Marilyn yeah I love Marilyn and I think that it's just to do with like the tradition of the dragon mythology you know that they're they do live for thousands of years, therefore they've seen a lot, therefore they are wise. And I think that... But then you also have, like, in fantasy, you have wizards that are wise, you know, as well. You've And they know, seem to know everything and you look to them. And I think that for books like this, where, I mean, it's like, a, it's a fantasy, it's a world that you don't know. You need some sort of wise character to point you in the right direction. Otherwise, the book would just fumble on. Yeah, I agree. I would be interested just to know, like, people that read fantasy, what they think of that, because I just thought that was a bizarre take, so. Mm. I don't read or come across a lot of high fantasy either, but one thing that I do love is the Witcher TV show. Mm, yeah. And I would be really interested, Stephanie, to see what you make of, there's a dragon episode in that, which I don't want to give too much away because it's a massive spoil. If I tell you why it's interesting it spoils the, the episode. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of enforcing but also kind of subverting the wise dragon 
basically they find the dragon and the dragon is not what you'd expect so that's all i'll say about that but like if you i think you should go i think you should watch it because i think that you would enjoy that (laughs) just watch the the one episode i'll find it yeah, I was going to say, tell me after the call and I'll definitely watch it because I'd started Witcher but I've just not got through it yet because I got told for Witcher um, I'd love the strong female characters in that as well. So <laughs> that's why yeah. I started watching it. I think you would. <laughs> <laughs> I've got just another passage that I was going to read and it's about when it starts to become apparent that the nameless one is awaking from his sleep. So the whole idea again of their religion and the kingdom of Virtudum is that the nameless one is bound under the abyss because Queen Sabrin lives. But then slowly, as you're starting to learn all the characters' own stories, it's kind of spotted with different scenes where dragons appear and they're the followers of the nameless one that are also supposedly in an eternal sleep. But they all start waking up, which obviously starts to get the people to question what's happening. And then eventually the nameless one's right-hand man, Fidadel, wakes up and he's this massive dragon and he basically comes straight for Queen Sabrin and man, I love this scene so much. (laughs) It was, I could cry, I loved it so much. I I just love a dramatic showdown between a dragon and a queen. You know know what I mean? It's just so good. So Fidadel comes to the kingdom and he calls out to Queen Sabrin and everyone thinks she's going to stay hidden away in her tower. But no, no, she comes out to face the dragon because she blindly believes that she will not die because obviously this religion she's built on, everyone else, like Eid, is like, don't be stupid, Sabrin, come on. Like, you're a human being. But she doesn't know that because it's religion that she believes in. So it's a whole... uh, That's very interesting too. So... (laughs) While Sabrin comes out to face Fidadel, Eid's like pure jumping from building to building, doing all these like <laughs> acrobatics, being like, God's sake, I've got to save this woman. <laughs> and I just thought it was really cool. So, and this scene also highlights the wise dragon trope that I love, and I'll tell you why. So, the Queen of Innes was on the uppermost balcony of the Alabastrian Tower. It stood just southeast of the Dearn Tower, where Fidadel was poised to kill. Worm on one building, queen on the other. In her hand was a ceremonial blade that represented Ascalon, the true sword. Useless. Leave this city and harm no soul, she called, or I swear by the saint whose blood I carry, you will face a defeat beyond any the house of Berifnet has ever exacted on your kind. Firadel bared his teeth again, but Sabrin dared to take another step. Before I leave this world, I will see your kind thrown down, sealed forever in the chasm in the mountain. Firadel reared up and opened his wings. Faced with this behemoth, the Queen of Innes was smaller than a poppet. Still, she did not balk. The worm had bloodlust in his eyes. They burned as hot as the fire in his belly. Eid knew she had moments to decide what to do next. It would have to be a wind warding. Wardings like this used a great deal of siding, and she had so very little left. But perhaps... If she poured her last store of it into the effort, she could work one upon Sabrin. She held her hand towards the Alabastrian Tower, cast her side and outward, and twisted it into a reef around the Queen of Innes. As Firadel unleashed his fire, so Eid broke the chains on her long, dormant power. Flame collided with ancient stone. 
Sabrin vanished into light and smoke. Eid was distinctly aware of Trude coming into the belfry, but it was too late to hide what she was doing. Her senses closed in on Sabrin. She felt the strain on her braids of protection around the Queen, the fire clawing for dominance, the pain in her own body as the warding gulped away her siding. Sweat soaked her corset. Her arm shook with the effort of keeping her hand turned outward. When Firadel closed his jaws, all was silent. Black vapours billowed from the tower, clearing slowly. Eid waited, heart tight as a drum, until she saw the figure in the smoke. Sabrin Berifnet was unscathed. It is my turn to give you a warning, a warning from my forebear, she said breathlessly, that if you make war against Virtudum, this hallowed blood will quench your fire and it will not return. Firadel did not acknowledge her, not this time. He was looking at the blackened stone and the spotless circle around Sabrin, a perfect circle. His nostrils flared, his pupils thinned to slits. He had seen a warning before. Eid stood like a statue as his merciless gaze roved, searching for her, while Sabrin remained still. When he looked towards the belfry, he sniffed, and Eid knew that he had caught her scent. She stepped out of the shadows beneath the clock face. Firadel showed his teeth. Every spine on his back flicked up, and a long hiss rattled on his tongue. Holding his gaze, Eid unsheathed her knife and pointed it at him across the divide. Here I am, she said softly. Here I am. <laughs> Is that not just the best scene you've ever heard? <laughs> I just love the the wording of his eyes roved looking for her and the fact that Sabrin is so cocky at this point and she's like taunting him she's like see your fire does nothing to me I'm a bit of net when actually the dragon's like I okay right you keep talking I'm gonna look for this witch that I now know exists (laughs) (laughs) and I just loved it it's it's the like visual description of RDI (laughs) (laughs) so true (laughs) I love that scene though because and this is such like an obvious statement to make but if Eid wasn't there like she'd be dead and that would be the line gone like like the dragons would have got out and for all the kingdom would know it's because she died so like we were right yeah but but yeah good old Eid saving the day well I just love the whole like you can it's so cinematic that you can imagine her stepping out and like pointing her sword towards this dragon on the tower. I love the diction surrounding dragons. I love roved, slivered. I love the kind of eerie, creepy. They're sm- I think that's why you need the dragon to be smart because they're eerie and creepy. They're not just like snakes and that. They have to have this brain. They need to be really personified to kind of get across how strong an antagonist they are I guess it was just Hmm. it was the sort of scene I just I loved it and it was such a good badass female moment I mean even the fact she's like in her corset and she's whipping out her sword and all that and her magic like not today dragon I just love it (laughs) (laughs) I love the bit about coming out under a clock face I don't know why but something about any scene Hmm. that takes place in a clock tower as you say it's so cinematic and you can imagine like the shadows of the clock face and like the mm. hands and like the fact that it's like fate and they think that it's like fate that she wasn't gonna get burned because she was a barathnet but it's not it's not that it's like magic ah oh, so good yeah yeah also like 
now that you're saying that the the book like is a countdown because obviously you know like all these dragons are waking up so you know that the unnamed one is coming Mm. and it's like a countdown to when that day is going to be and like this I don't wouldn't count this as a spoiler but they find out the exact date it's going to be and like it's just you're constantly reading like oh my god oh my god it's getting closer it's getting closer yeah it's she did it such a good way she always says that it's a slow burn book and I've realised that that phrase falls Samantha Shannon everywhere because all her books are such slow burns that she literally jokes about it herself where she's like, I've not made these characters kiss and I'm on page a thousand, what am I doing? <laughs> um, <laughs> she's like one of those, but it's like she builds it slowly, 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 like bit by bit by bit and then it just unravels all of a sudden at the end and it's so quick, so fast paced. Like, wait, what's going on? What's happening? Like the ending, Emily, I don't know if you found this, but the ending... Not that we're going to talk about it, was very mm. quick compared to the rest of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Very quick. Yeah. But it felt like, I, I don't know, it kind of felt right that it was quick. I'd say. No spoilers. I know, no spoilers. <laughs> we swear, we swear. I'd say, like, jumping on Rebecca's kind of bandwagon with the whole clock tower stuff as well, and kind of what you were saying about Emily, you were saying as well that if there was no Berifnet line because if Eid hadn't been there, I guess you could also mm. kind of say that that was like. Aid buying time quite literally like she's literally mm, yeah buying the time for this line so that the people don't riot because obviously if they lose faith in their ruling family then that would make the whole city crumble and that's that's the whole point of Eid. that's why she's there she's meant to be there to protect it so Eid sent from the priory i haven't actually said that because obviously the book's called the priory of the orange tree Eid is sent from this priory which is made up of mages and her task is to defend Sabrin and then later on in the book she's meant to kind of go back but obviously she's become so enthralled in this world that she starts to find it difficult to leave and that is all I will say Mm. <laughs> you would love the witcher oh my god yeah. <laughs> I hear this there's, all a, the time. there's a whole like school of witches and mages <gasps> that get sent to different kingdoms and their assignment to whatever kingdom defines the course of their life and then they oh, become man. embroiled in whatever kingdom they get sent to and then the witches have to like decide if they're gonna be loyal to other witches or <gasps> their kingdom because they all get sent to different places it's a mindfuck, you'd love it. Why have I, yeah, I'd love that. Why have I, why have I not watched it? I don't I think know, I'm, man. I know, what am I doing in my life? Can you tell I'm really excited for the next season to come? It's been promising to come for so long, and I'm like, could you hurry up, please? When is it? When's it out? I don't know, soon. It just keeps saying coming soon. I'm like, <laughs> God's sake. I'm trying to think what else I had to say about the Priory. I don't think I had much else in terms of the problem is, and I've said it already, is that it's, it is such a big book, but there's so many little plot twists here and there that unravel every country's religion. And when they all start to learn it together and it all comes to a head, that's when the book really kicks in. So it's a spoiler-free zone here, so I don't want to obviously go into it too much. But just from why I personally loved it was just from a writing perspective, I think, Samantha Shannon with her feminist retelling of a classic tale, her three-dimensional characters, it's so difficult to achieve sometimes for writers and people really underestimate how difficult it is to craft three-dimensional mm-hmm. characters and also just my wise dragon scene. 
and all the badass moments. <laughs> <laughs> like, I f- they're they're my hooks. I'd say that's what like it was my type of book. You know, it like, hooked mm. me in. But mm. you're infatuated with it. Infatuated. <laughs> oh, that was a good segue, Rebecca. <laughs> Have you done this before? (laughs) (laughs) I also loved it. Very much for the same reasons. I also really liked that the eastern dragons and western dragons were so different. Yeah. Like the the western ones are the kind of what I would sort of say are like a stereotypical dragon, how I view them, which is like the scales and the wings and the fire and you can kind of tell from the way that Faradell was described, it's like very like smoky and like mm. dark. But then the Eastern dragons are, they're still very like dangerous, but they're like water dragons. Mm. Like they're a lot more like graceful and they don't have wings. They just kind of like float. Yeah. Uh, so I really liked the contrast. And I also really liked when they talked about those dragons, the eastern ones, like, coming up out of the water, all the, obviously, water would fall off them, and it was like they were raining, and, like, it's like clouds and rain. Like, I loved all the imagery. Very contrasting That's images. so pretty. I used yeah. to have a book when I was little that was, like, all the different kinds of dragons, and it was, like, really... <gasps> I used to have a book! It was, like, a really was it big dragonology? Book. Yeah, it was, like, a really big, tall, like, wide book, and it was, like, it was made to look like an old leather-bound book, but it wasn't. Yeah. And it had I all these, like... <laughs> it had all these, like, beautiful <laughs> illustrations of all these different, yeah. like, different interpretations of the dragon myth around the world. And it was Yeah, so no, I pretty. had that. I had... I had Dragonology, Egyptology, and Piratology because those were my three obsessions when I was a kid. <laughs> I loved. I think I had Egyptology as well because I loved yeah. ancient Egypt. And it unfolded yeah. out into a, a life-size Tutankhamun. <laughs> Guys, you're making my childhood seem so boring. Did you not have the Scholastic Book no, Fair? No, no. Wait, I didn't have any of this. <laughs> You missed out, man. You got little red leaflets and then you got to order from the re- little red leaflets. Mm. That was the highlight of my entire school experience. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm so sad I missed this. Why? <laughs> anyway, that was a, that was a random <laughs> wave of nostalgia <laughs> from the prior. Is that us? Is that, is that the infatuation done? Yes? I mean, I believe so, yes. it's one of those (laughs) it's it's one of those where I like mind blanked just spoke at you and I'm like I hope that made sense and it wasn't just me rambling I think it made sense it did did make sense it was all good we're going to open up our writing chat this week to our special guest Stephanie and we're all going to have a little chat about as writers about some of the things that you have been asking us over the past six months of the podcast. (laughs) So a lot of people have been asking Emily and I since the start of Infatuated about our writing journeys. Emily, why don't you kick us off and tell us a bit about your writing journey? I always wrote stories when I was like a kid Mm -hmm. like I think I was always kind of coming up with stories anyway writing them down thinking they were really long they were probably like two pages (laughs) but I suppose I took it more seriously when I was around like 14 to 16 ish I had a few 
friends on Tumblr who we would all write together and we would all like share our ideas and our characters and like sometimes we would write you know like I'd write a paragraph and they'd write a paragraph and it'd go back to me. I I think that's also when I got more into reading fantasy actually funnily enough which as we were kind of talking about earlier like it's a lot more character based Mm. than a lot of stuff I probably read before and with my friend Kirsten we would essentially like role play as our characters which maybe sounds a bit weird but like we would have conversations as our characters like I would ask her a question but she would answer as like one of her characters Mm. and vice versa because it's such a good way of like really getting into the the mind of them like really into their head and so I think in that kind of time when I was doing that when I was writing with like my friends and reading a lot of book series and fantasy series uh, I was pretty like prolific at writing I guess. I did NaNoWriMo successfully once and I got pretty far along (laughs) in another year as well and then a few years later I went to uni and as you guys know we studied English and creative writing and I also took film modules as well. I don't know I'd say my outlook on writing kind of changed a lot because I was just focusing on the writing assignments but I wasn't really writing outside of that. Mm. I don't know it's weird because I definitely was being creative but I also feel like I lost the kind of creative buzz that I'd had like with all my friends and stuff online Mm. which wasn't something that I think I noticed at uni but like in retrospect I can see that that happened Mm -hmm. and even though I liked my writing at uni looking back I think I kind of realised I just wasn't approaching it in the same way I guess so I wasn't writing outside of classes and then obviously as you guys know it took me like about a year after finishing my degree that I actually wrote something again (laughs) creatively for myself like I did my postgrad and stuff that's what was lots of like academic writing but nothing creative Mm -hmm. and then last year I just kind of got my spark back and you guys all know the rest of that story. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's my very condensed version of my writing journey. I think that probably the uni thing, I don't want to speak for Stephanie, but I feel like we we all kind of went through that where yeah. studying creative writing is a good and a bad thing because it opens you up to things that you would never have thought to write before but it also Mm. makes it into something to get a grade on and you end up twisting yourself it sucks the fun out of it because you're not being true to your own writing you're writing for a very particular audience at that point 100 percent. yeah so i think like just jumping into that bit i'll go into the whole journey in a minute but like I think that getting the spark back for me has been like more free to just explore areas that I wouldn't have put the time into in case they didn't work because I had to get something Mm. together for a grade that I knew was going to be good yeah so I think like just having the the time and the space to like not worry about if it was going to end up good Mm -hmm. has been helpful yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely what about you stephanie do you want to outline your your journey yeah. to writing i have been writing since i was young as well same as emily i've been writing ever since i can remember it started just with 
my my dad obviously saw that I loved stories and really encouraged me to write and then when he thought I had a bit of a talent for it he was like you should try and actually become a writer one day so ever since that I've like always wanted to be one and it started with you know writing wee stories based off of like you remember the clip art stuff you could get on Microsoft Word Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so I used to just write daft wee stories like from that and I just read a lot and then I moved to America when I was 11 and I met my best friend called Abshara there and she also loved reading and writing too and we just got to talking and we started writing stories together again same as Emily where we'd write a chapter and we'd send it back and she'd write a chapter but we also started writing our own books and when I was 12 I finished a 200 page fantasy novel and so did Abshara and we both got them self-published so that was really cool. Jesus. You, you can know, no, we had a lot of time. Actually, I don't actually know how we had time for it because we say now, like we had so much homework. Like I did more when I was 11, 12 than I do now. Well, as a pandemic, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> normal life. Yeah. I think it was that kind of, you know, it's you're bouncing off someone again and it really encourages you. Yeah. You want to read their story so much, but you also want to give them something to read. And obviously you were getting positive words of encouragement. So it, that really helped me write that book quickly. You know, that was like a year. Mm. And interestingly, that idea from that book is the idea and the novel I'm writing now. So that's been over 10 years in the making, but I'm taking that as a good thing because all my favourite authors said it took them like 10 years to finish their books. So mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> taking that as that. Yeah. So that that's kind of my idea for that. But then obviously I came back to Scotland and went through high school, was just kind of writing on and off. I've written different versions of my novel now, like several times. And like I'll, I'll get through like 150 pages and I'd stop. So I'm like, I don't like it this way anymore. And this one I'm currently writing is definitely the finished one because I'm on like 250 pages or whatever. This is the finished one and I'm happy with it and, you know, I'm mature now and I've actually like went and studied writing. I just I just feel like this is the time for this story. Obviously went to uni with you guys and studied English literature and creative writing as well. And I agree with Rebecca that it's an interesting one of creative writing classes is that they kind of, they encouraged you to write and hand in you know the pieces that you were working on as your own personal collection but I didn't want to because I don't know it felt really personal to me I I didn't want to share the fantasy so in creative writing Mm. I I did change myself I I noticed that now and just when Rebecca said it it kind of made me think about it that in uni one of my other genres I love and I hope to write a book in one day is dystopian fiction and at university I don't know I don't think that in creative writing I never really felt like fantasy was welcome yeah it didn't feel like a welcome (laughs) genre not to you know yeah it wasn't Um, and in a lot of just to be really real with our listeners in a lot of creative writing degrees literary fiction is your main genre and fantasy mm -hmm. and other genre fictions even western or romance or anything like that check that that's going to be welcome if that's what you write uh, because it's often not yeah Like, I I mean, I do think they obviously helped us. I just don't think it was in terms of genre. And I think that I kept it quite private to me and I focused more on dystopian. And, you know, I got some useful stuff out of it. I've got an idea that I handed in from my folio in our final year. 
and I want to turn that into a dystopian novel once I finish my fantasy so I can see benefits mm-hmm. to it as well in that regard and I'm also attempting just now to co-author a science fiction book with my dad and that's Aww. yeah Aww. we started a while ago and then I just remembered the other day Emily I meant to tell you this on the call the other day I totally forgot <laughs> um so I'm trying to do that as well so I'm Right now, um, my writing journey is that I'm just writing and trying to finish a first draft of something. Yeah. And then hopefully try and get that published. But that's my writing journey so far. Love it. (laughs) Okay, Rebecca, what about you? Obviously, similar to you guys, I've been writing stories and stuff since I was little. A lot, I think a lot of my formative writing before I even knew what fan fiction was, was fan fiction because I would just take characters from other things that I loved and like make up my own stories about them. I used to get really obsessed with things and like not be able to think about anything else. So I've always found it quite hard to have an original idea because I get Mm. so immersed in other people's worlds. But I think that was like really good. I, I used to like write loads of stories and like nick characters from all the books that I loved when I was little and just like put them all together and see how they'd interact (laughs) which was fun and then when I was a teenager I was the same I had a friend that I'd write with and we would do it was almost like screenplay because it was like what you said Emily you'd role play like your character um and kind of talk to each other and we wrote a few episodic type things like I say it wasn't it wasn't full book length things but it was like we'd we'd write sort of half a scene and then fill the other one would fill in the other half which was really fun although when I was little I really read a lot of like fantasy and a lot of I read everything read anything that I was given Mm. when I was in high school I didn't really read I lost it I didn't read for years apart from that those things that I wrote with my friend and the occasional creative writing piece for school I didn't really write what I was writing but I didn't realize I was writing was I was always writing poetry because I was always writing lines all right yeah I didn't I had never really the only poetry that I came across was the stuff that you get at school and it's very much framed growing up as like something that was a genre of the past like I yeah. I didn't I didn't know that people still wrote poetry <laughs> until I was like <laughs> until I was like eighteen, and then I was like, yeah. oh, that's a thing that people still do. And a lot of the poetry that we got given was like really old, and I didn't connect with it at all. So what I'd be writing was lines that I thought maybe could be lyrics, but I didn't have any musical talent. So basically, I was just like, I have lines in my head sometimes that I write <laughs> down and do nothing with because. <laughs> I don't I don't sing, so that's that. Yeah. And then I went to study physics and just forgot about writing for years. And then I started to do a bit of science journalism from my physics and then realized mm. that I actually enjoyed the journalism more than I enjoyed the science and then that brought me back round to English and creative writing came and studied English and creative writing instead, bombed into second year, met you two. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, right, yes, I remember this part of my personality. She's been gone for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and I just started writing again. And then, as we've said, in our creative writing degree, 
there was a lot of focus on literary fiction, experimental fiction, essay and poetry, which for people that write genre fiction is not ideal. For people that like like me that have no genre <laughs> was absolutely ideal. <laughs> yeah. um, I really lucked out there. So I then started finding these books that I didn't know existed and feeling really validated that the stuff that I wanted to write is an actual thing. Because all I had read was fantasy and I thought, I can't write that. I don't write that. That's not how my brain works. Yeah. So wrote a lot of essays and experimental fiction for uni, got my heart broken, started watching loads of spoken word poetry videos <laughs> and listening to sad songs. <laughs> and then I was like, you know what? I really vibe with all of these sad songs and sad poetry videos. I'm going to write that shit. And that's that's what I do, as we know, as I write sad prose poetry. But since graduating from uni, and I went back and did the MLIT Masters in Creative Writing, and I think that what that did for me was give me the chance to like pour all of my intellectual academic energy into writing because I hadn't done that when it was a split honours between your English mm. studies and your creative writing. I had always felt that the English studies was a more reliable way to keep my grades up, so mm. I'd focused on that. So, like, b yeah. being able to do a whole course that was just, like, you have to now dedicate all your mental energy to writing and see what happens, yeah. um, that was helpful, like, that format, and... Long story short, now I have created a chapbook of poetry, a collection of memoir essays, and I have started a novel, finally, because I yeah. remembered how to write fiction after so many years. So yeah, a bit of a different one for me, but I got there in the end. You deserve an applause yeah. after that one, Rebecca. That was the best writing journey. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so strange to me because I really felt like you guys at uni where I was like so frustrated by not being encouraged to write fantasy and for ages I had like this imposter syndrome because I was like that's all I've read so that's mm -hmm. all I know how to maybe one day write yeah. mm. but then I don't enjoy writing that <laughs> Yeah. So then I had yeah. this like fear where I was like, I'm not going to be a writer because I can't write the thing that I like to read. But then it just turns out that I like to read a lot of different, like, that's not my preferred genre, it turns out. <laughs> I think a lot of people, like we all took very different things from the course and that's really good because it helped you, Rebecca, you know, find what you want to do. And for me, what I would say is that studying English lit as opposed to creative writing that's actually what helped me with writing far more which was so bizarre to me because you would think it'd be the other way around. No I was actually going to say a very similar thing which is even in a sort of backwards way if you weren't getting to write the thing that you wanted to write at creative writing at least you'd worked out what it was you wanted to write <laughs> like I was like, oh, they're not going to like this thing, but I really want to write it. So at least it kind of taught you what you wanted. And also, same with the English lit side. Mm -hmm. Like, I really learned how much I love gothic fiction. And then that's influenced quite a lot of my writing style yeah. since. Yeah, I think I was, like, in a way similar because the degree 
for me opened me up to like literary fiction and poetry which I love and like helped me to feel informed about that enough to like go and be able to choose my own books in it because that's a thing that no one talks about is that Mm -hmm. if you don't know anything about a genre or a type of writing it can be a really intimidating place to start so that was good Mm -hmm. for that but also the type of things that I write is more popular poetry than literary and so it still wasn't fully welcomed in the course by the end by the time that I decided like oh no actually this is what I vibe with the most Mm -hmm. so while I was rewarded for being experimental I was also like sort of dissuaded and that made me want to do it more (laughs) they'd be like oh well done for trying new things maybe don't do this thing and I'd be like no I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna do that thing but I think that's (laughs) yeah I think me and Emily were talking about this I actually think that what I would say to that, and and it's a good thing, kind of twisting it, is that for me, I think creative writing made you defend yourself a bit more in the mm-hmm. sense of like, you would say, no, I know this genre, I know the tropes of this genre, I think that worked. And you would kind of become more confident in your own voice and your own opinion on writing. Because when you first go to university, you're looking to learn from these people and you think, oh my gosh, they're published or they're this and that, they've done this amazing thing, like, I can't wait to learn from them. But actually what they kind of gave me was this sense of like, no, I know why I'm writing it this way and I actually believe in myself and I believe in my writing in this way. So I would say that for you, Rebecca, even saying that, it's like, it does teach you to kind of stick up for yourself and to be like, no, I'm, I'm going to do it differently. And if we all wrote the same, how boring would it be? Exactly. I think something that I've written down here in my notes is that for me, like, even though I happened to fall into genres that were rewarded by the course, the course was still more of a placebo than a drug. Mm. Like, I don't feel mm. like it really... It didn't give me what I thought it was going to give me. I don't think it necessarily taught me how to write well. Yeah. But I think it gave me the confidence to know good writing from bad writing and know my own taste. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's gave it I think that's what we all probably took from it is to be like it tried to prescribe good and bad writing and what we all took from that was no. Nope. <laughs> I, I, I actually can decide for myself what good and bad writing is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cuz I think I've said before in here kind of what you're both saying there about like co- the fact that it gives you confidence to kind of stick up for yourself. And I actually wrote in my notes, I wanted to mention that again and just kind of say to anyone who's maybe thinking like, oh, they're just saying that because they can't take criticism. <laughs> um, actually, like, I think we're all kind of the same where if someone, if a tutor gave us a valid criticism and was like, this is something I think mm-hmm. you should change, you would be like, yeah, okay, I agree with you, I get it. But if they were saying something that was opinion, Mm-hmm. I think we were all pretty yeah, like yeah. Mm, no I on like yeah. I, I don't know there's a difference between a valid criticism and an opinion and I think again as you were saying in that kind of backwards way you kind of learn that yeah. <laughs> which which is a positive it's hard to learn to differentiate that for yeah. yourself and I don't I don't think I did until fourth year properly I think I just reached a point where I was like, you know, you know what? Like, I am right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because, well, the thing is, like, uh, I don't know if you guys will agree with me, but I feel like a lot of the time a tutor's opinion would be very different from the class's opinion. So, like, 
say I wrote something and all you guys really liked it, you know, like all the class were saying, oh, I really like this, really like that. Then I, I remember there's a few classes where like a tutor would say something and I'd just be like, I don't think you've got that. Yeah. But I would look around the mm. class and you use would all be the same. <laughs> yeah. And I'd be like, yeah, no, I am I am right here. Yeah. <laughs> like I think you have to decide yeah. who you're writing for. Yeah. And when or, yeah, definitely. when your peers, if that's who you're writing for, if that's your audience, yeah. are saying like I love this and you can tell that it's genuine, you can you can believe that. Yeah. Yeah, another thing I was going to say that I think is a real positive of studying creative writing, if that is something that people are thinking of doing, is something that I didn't think was important until we had it, which is that it gives you a sense of community. Mm-hmm. It's something I don't think you hear about in relation to writing when you're growing up. I think you're always taught, like, writing is very lonely, it's a solitary task but actually and we've kind of already mentioned it today the fact that all our sort of formative writing years we were writing with someone yeah it's really helpful having someone who just gets it and my favorite classes were always the ones where you know everyone got to read out and everyone had to give feedback so you were all like sharing ideas with each other like I don't know maybe you'd like suggest like oh I think you should read this book because it's kind of like this and like you know maybe it'll help you or I don't know I think your writing gets better when you talk about it with someone because it makes it clearer in your head Mm -hmm. and I don't think that's a realization I would have come to if I hadn't had to have all those classes yeah. I was really skeptical of that when we got we got mm. we got made writing buddies and that was how we met. Yeah. And I was so like, that's a dumb idea. Who's gonna do that? Yeah, I think everyone <laughs> thought that on the first day. Yeah. Like I, I remember being told like you're gonna pair up and you're all gonna share stuff and I think everyone was like, Why? Yeah. But actually <laughs> that's probably one of the best lessons that we got in that degree was it's it's good to write with someone like to have someone to talk it out with I saw there was a thing the other day I don't know if you guys saw on Twitter that was trending and it was harsh writing advice and it was Mm. someone who had said harsh writing advice remember that other writers are your competition and so many writers jumped on that (laughs) and were like no writers are not your competition like use each other as a resource help each other out like just because they're published doesn't mean that you won't be published and I think that I do actually think there's a lot of people that have this idea that writing is a very like solitary thing and in some ways it is but I also think that especially if you're wanting to be published obviously you are gonna have to put it out there at some point and I think that with creative writing when I don't know if you guys remember but like the first class I was so nervous when they said to us for the first time write this and read it out in front of the class by the end yeah I was doing it all the time I didn't care who hated it I was just like I'll write what I want if you hate it you hate it if you love it you love it Mm -hmm. and I'd say that I mean we've already kind of touched on it but I think that the best thing creative writing wise is it just gives you that confidence to not only believe in yourself and your writing and argue with people that kind of say to you like nah it doesn't work and you're like well no I've read around this genre I feel like I've put this in because it works and I do think it works but thanks for your comments but it also gives you that confidence to take the criticism to read it out to people that may not like it or may love it because our course was so varied with genre like 
Mm-hmm. No one wrote the same. Everyone was different. There was stuff we didn't like. There was stuff that we loved. It was. I just think it was really good for that. Like if it's kind of what Emily's saying, the community vibe. That the best thing for me was it. It gave me the confidence to just detach myself from my writing in that way. To not be so emotionally attached and be like, oh my god, I didn't like it. You know. Yeah, I think as well that when you're growing up and the way that the media portrays writing as well. Mm-hmm. A lot of narratives about writing are about a great idea or a great like intellectual property or a great story. And I think that makes people really, really nervous to share anything that's a work in progress because there's this narrative that people are going to steal your idea or mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that someone's going to do it better than you and therefore like you have to keep it a secret and th- so you can't ask for help on it if you're keeping it a secret but i think that something that our creative writing course helped me realize and did so so well is that using the Iowa format where everyone is given the same prompt and then everyone has to respond to it and you found that not one single person responded in the same way to literally and sometimes it was a word and you could abstract it as much as you wanted but sometimes it was literally you were given a character and a situation Mm -hmm. and you were told you are this person in this situation write their voice and no one would write the same thing twice yeah so i think that just really gave the confidence to like believe the fact that there's no such thing as an original idea you're talent comes from your voice yeah and no one else can have that so other writers aren't your competition because they don't have your voice yeah totally agree one thing i thought i would bring up i mentioned it earlier the fact that i kind of felt like i lost like the kind of creative buzz about writing when i was at uni Mm -hmm. because a big thing i've learned over the past year of drafting a novel is that I need to be like really excited about the story and the characters and like thinking about the story not just as words so like I make playlists for my story and Pinterest boards and I like sometimes like sketch the characters out and like when I talk to Stephanie about writing like I talk about the characters as if they're like actual real people. She does. She sends me the horoscopes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, yes. But, but like that just helps me be in the world. Yeah. But I think if I did that at uni, if I brought those ideas up mm-hmm. in one of our workshops, I think it'd be very hit and miss because I think I don't know if the tutors would like have thought that was like valid. Because I know for me that it's important for me to craft a story that way. But I think it sounds trivial which it isn't, but it sounds kind of like you're, oh, you're not actually writing, you're just, like, dreaming stuff up. I think you're making it tangible. I I don't, I wouldn't say it sounds trivial at all. I think you Mm. need to be absolutely in love with your story and your idea and convinced that it's got legs, you know, it's going to run for it to actually come across that way on the page. Because I think if, if an author's loved what they've written, you can feel that when you read it and then you love it too. So I, I wouldn't say... yeah. Well, I don't think it's trivial. I just think that they would have thought it was. But, like, my kind of point to that was that one thing I've thought about since finishing the degree is that we were, I would argue, being taught how to be serious writers. 
but I don't think anyone in our classes was a serious person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, I think we were all pretty, um, like, obviously we're all very different writers in the, the work that we produce, but I think we're all pretty, you know dreamer type people there wasn't a lot of room for youthful exuberance in that class and we were all young and exuberant (laughs) 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 but uh yeah i think what you said about thinking of it as more than just words is so on the nose because i think a lot of what we were taught which was really useful but not necessarily Mm. what you thought you were going to be taught was wordcraft Like, Mm -hmm. we literally had Mm. wordcraft seminars, which were about understanding language and the way that you can wield it, which is really helpful, but it's not... Mm -hmm. Stories and words are different. Yeah. And we were taught more about words than stories. I think it's... That's why it's important that if you study... You study English Lit and you study creative writing together is that double function, because for me, in English Lit, you're constantly learning about stories and why an author crafted it that way about their background and Mm -hmm. and that way you know you really analyze the story whereas creative writing is like what you said it's it focuses on kind of making it sound pretty and flowery language and like kind of like it was good though I, I still think there's value in that lesson but I agree with you that you weren't getting we never had a class that was like right this is how you do an effective plot or creative and effective yeah. plot this is how you create a three-dimensional character like so if you're kind of looking at creative writing in that way certainly in our experience it wasn't really like that it wasn't really like you're getting taught the basics of a story it was the writing rather than the creating that we yeah. were being taught yeah we weren't being yeah. taught how to create we were being taught how to write what was assumed to already be created in our heads yeah yeah and i think what you just said about the fact that Obviously, it's a joint degree, mm-hmm. so you had to do English Lit as well as the creative writing. I actually think that's, like, I think that was very good for, like, the, all the reasons you said. Like, I don't think you could get, I don't know, I just don't know if it would be as effective yeah, if it was, if you were only doing creative writing. And I think that's probably why you don't really get many creative writing degrees. Mm-hmm. At least, I don't know what it's like now, but at least when we were applying... Dundee was like the only place yeah. in Scotland that did creative writing as a degree rather yeah. than just like a module. A module. Mm-hmm. But even then, obviously, it was, it was a joint honours. It wasn't just creative writing. But I actually, I really hope that you can't just do creative writing as a yeah. degree. I think you really you need to be studying English. Yeah, mm-hmm. you'll. It's like it's kind of like you need to be like grounded. It's like the English lit kind of grounds you, yeah. <laughs> gives you like. I don't know a different level of importance I guess and I want to say on that as well like we all took really different modules in English Lit so like it's not as if we did not all have the same English literature education we have different specialisms when it comes to English literature but even still in having all the different specialisms the approach in English literature that is so like in the nitty gritty of the story, the author, the author's historical context, why that story was important at that time, etc., etc. So helpful for understanding why your own story is important. 
I love all that yeah. stuff. That's like my, that's why I love our degree is learning all the supposedly boring yeah. stuff. Like, tell me what the society was like at the time. <laughs> tell me what the author's background was. Come on, <laughs> give me it. Show me how art yeah. changed the fucking world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so true. Shall we move on to talk about writing routines and rituals? Yeah, sure. let's go. Emily, tell us about yours. So my routine at the moment kind of revolves around mine and Stephanie's like weekly call. So like each week we set a goal and like as long as I get it done before that call (laughs) with Stephanie (laughs) then like that's what matters. Because I like I do work well with some kind of structure but also I can't be too rigid with my structure because when I'm not furloughed I have a job with a rota so it changes every week and obviously I'm doing my PhD as well so like I have to be pretty flexible with my writing time but at the same time I still try and treat it as a priority which I think is like key to like being consistent so even if there's some weeks where like I only have time to write once and I just write like a hundred words at least I've done something like I'm still trying to treat it as a priority but in terms of like rituals I like to have music playing I've got a playlist like specifically for my novel which I normally listen to or if I like really need to concentrate sometimes I listen to like film scores or like some kind of classical instrumental thing if I need to be like really focused I like lots of cups of tea I like having a candle on if I'm writing like in my bed at night or something but I normally try and write at a table so it feels more like structured and like I'm sitting down to get a task done but sometimes you know inspiration strikes when you're in bed (laughs) (laughs) but like that's kind of it like I I, I had a bit of a stricter routine when I was still in the flat I think I spoke about it on a podcast, like, I was I was getting up early and, like, writing before, like, lunch and, like, doing my other work after lunch and that's kind of fallen apart a bit, seeing as we're in another lockdown <laughs> um, and I have no job, so <laughs> it's a bit more flexible, but, yeah, I just, my my goal is just to treat it as a priority and I always make sure I do at least, like, something each week so that I, like, one have made progress and two have something to tell Stephanie <laughs> when I talk to her. <laughs> Love that. What about you, Stephanie? Well, Rebecca. So <laughs> Emily and I, yes, we do our calls, but we're very different. As in <laughs> I can be so bad for meeting my deadlines for Tuesday. So I'm gonna give the listeners an image <laughs> of me writing. Imagine <laughs> Dr. Frankenstein over this monster. The monster being my novel, right? Mm -hmm. Now think of any mad scientist trope you can, you know, the crazy hair, the veins popping on the forehead, all that, like, sleep deprived, etc, etc. That is me with my novel when I get an idea because I am the sort of person who writes whatever I want, so whatever scene it is, whether that's at the end of the novel, the middle, the beginning, just write it, you know, really quickly and go, right, I'll come back to that. Mm. Then I get an idea for another part that's like completely earlier on in the novel. So they don't relate at all. So my manuscript is my monster. 
<laughs> and I am currently trying to put it all together so I can send something to Emily. And whenever Emily sees me on a Tuesday, I'm like, right, Emily, okay, so this week, I know I said you I was going to do this, but I've got this really good idea late at night. I've had to go and write it. And I'm like, I don't know where it's going to go. And I'm like, the next week it's, right, Emily, I'm really sorry. I know I said that I was going to finish it, but now I've added like 50 pages because I've decided that I've got a really cool idea that has to go in. This novel is going to be like 900 pages. I'm really sorry about it. I just can't stop it. So... That is me writing. The energies are so different. Emily's so so chill. See, when I come in and Emily's writing, she looks so serene. She looks so, like, chill and, like, cosy and happy. And then whenever I imagine you, it's literally, like, with, like, Helter Skelter, like, music in the background. Like, Well, that's the funny thing. I can't listen to any music at all. I need, like, silence. Or I can't concentrate. Mm. And I tend to write at night. And it's kind of what Emily touched on. And I'm sure a lot of people will relate to this. You're like chilled at night. And then you suddenly get hit with this wave of inspiration and motivation. And I just get up and sit at my desk. Because it's kind of the same. I'll, I'll try and make sure I sit at my desk. Because... That obviously makes you just kind of feel like productive, you know. But I mean, there are times yeah. I sit in my bed, I'm not going to lie. But I try to sit at my desk. So I tend to get a lot of my motivation at night. But I'm I'm quite sporadic, I'm random. I know that a lot of people, their advice is, you know, to have a set time and force yourself to write every single day. And I, I do mm. try that. So I do, I'm like working part-time just now, then part-time for a little. So when I finish for the day... I try and use like the remainder of that working day to write and I've been like pretty good at sticking to that but I also acknowledge that I'm just the sort of person that chops and changes when she pleases and I've come to make my peace with that so I'm sure next week I'll do nothing I'll be writing till like three in the morning last night I ended up staying up until one in the morning I think last night writing because I got a great idea by the way Emily that's another added scene apologies good luck with that one do you know what she says this though and then she doesn't send them that's to also me and I'm true. Like, I don't I still don't know what's happening <laughs> it's because I'm like right I need to get this perfect for Emily but this does not work right now I'm gonna work on it and then I get an idea for another scene I'm like right I'm gonna do this one meanwhile I literally sent you like a chapter or something and in the middle of it was just me going I don't know something else happens here <laughs> <laughs> I think I've just decided that I'm just gonna like screw it and I'm just gonna share the entire document of Emily and be like it's a mess yeah. it doesn't make sense good luck to you because I don't even know what's going on <laughs> as for writing rituals don't follow Stephanie's example because it's stressful it's fun it's exciting but it's not exactly organized but because of lockdown I have found that I'm able to force myself to write a bit every day. And I think as long as I do a bit every day, I'm fine. And I don't care what time it's at. That's kind of my new way to look at it. I think I'm somewhere in between you guys. So I do (laughs) obviously think of myself as a writer. And I do believe that you have to write enough to keep that being true. You can't just say that and then (laughs) never write. But I also don't have a super intense approach to it. So I'm not sure how helpful this will be to anyone because right this is going to sound very wanky but like I don't (laughs) have like a set ritual for writing but it's more like each idea that I have will set its own ritual so like Mm. 
like my sort of popular prose poetry confessional stuff, almost all of that is either drafted in the middle of the night in my notes app when I'm half asleep, like lying with the phone charger, like trying to stretch it across my bed, being like, okay, I'm going to put this line in my phone. Yeah. Or when I've just come out of the shower because I have loads of good ideas when I'm just in the shower washing my hair and then I'm like, oh, this is an excellent thought to write down. So I'll come out and write it in my notes (laughs) app. Um, which is why it takes me like an hour to have a shower because I'm always coming out the shower to write things on my phone to then go back in the shower. <laughs> but then about once a week, I'll try and go through and like take one of those ideas and actually sit down in an afternoon at a laptop and like make something out of it and draft something. Mm. Then totally contrasted from that, when I was writing my series of essays for my dissertation, it was summer. So I'd go out like a massive walk through like fields and woods and I deliberately not take any headphones so that I had to be alone with my thoughts and see what was coming up then I'd go home eat some lunch go up to my room and write and like I did that every day until the thing was done and it was very mm. structured with my novel I will work- I only work on that in bed and it's only <laughs> ever in the like first thing in the morning or last thing in the evening I have not got an ongoing project but I feel like I need to write something I just take my notebook places don't even take my laptop because I'm like I'm not gonna this is not gonna be laptop writing like (laughs) this is not this is not laptop stage ideas just take my notebook somewhere go to a coffee shop when they're open like get a wee coffee and a cake have my notebook there see what comes out I don't have rituals but in the same way like as you Stephanie I don't I can't do music I need it to be quiet I quite often have white noise in my headphones just so that it drowns out any like ambient noise but I also like a candle as Emily said I like a wee bit of like atmosphere to get the juices flowing but I was thinking about the idea of like working every day and that whole thing that you get taught and like it's in all the Stephen King type advice where it's like you you have to and you know what I was saying this to Emily on the last episode I think I totally work in fits and spurts I have never in my life had a steady output of writing and yeah. no. to be honest, that like it works for me though. Like in in the later half of the year, late summer to early winter, I'm super productive. And then this time of year, I'm much less intense. And I used mm-hmm. to get really insecure about that because I'd be like, what if this is just me stopping forever? What if I stop now and <laughs> don't ever write again? Like, what am I doing? I'm an imposter. I can't call myself a writer. But now I'm like, actually, yeah. nah. <laughs> Yeah. This is this is my non-productive <laughs> yeah. time and my productive time will come later and it doesn't matter. I also think most of my... Because I, I feel like I've made myself sound more structured than I actually am because like most of my time is spent thinking about writing mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than like actually writing and I am the same where I have so many notes on my phone... I have like you know like notebooks to write stuff in and I am very much if I have an idea I write them in that but the what I'm talking about with like you know like sitting down and working is like me taking my phone my notebook whatever and like compiling all of these (laughs) notes that I've left myself and trying to make them into something because I'm in that like redrafting stage like I I swear every thought I have is about a character like I don't even think about myself half the time (laughs) I'm like what would he be doing like <laughs> I'm just constantly trying to like do that but I think I've made myself sound more structured than I am I think most of my time is just me like 
having thoughts. <laughs> I think though, like, don't do yourself down though, because you did spend like you've put the hours in on that laptop. I've yeah. seen it. Yeah. Yeah. You've got a finished novel, like I know you mentioned that in the last episode, but I mean, come on, that's amazing. Whereas, like, I spend maybe one session per week actually at my laptop drafting something, and all of the mm. rest of my writing is done in sporadic notes to myself. Yeah, sometimes the whole thing though does come out in the notes app. Yeah, like yeah, sometimes in the middle of the night I will write an entire poem and it doesn't change. When I when I take it to yeah. the laptop, I'm like, no, actually, that was that was exactly how I wanted to say it. Cool. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. I think people have asked us this because they think there's like some special, you know, designated thing to do. Like, I think people do see, you know, yeah, Stephen King, like he sits down the same time every day and he he writes so many words, and like that's obviously amazing for him. It works very well. But that's clearly just how his brain's wired, whereas, like, none of us are are like that. Mm. I think you just kind of have to, like, if I'm trying to turn this into advice, just do whatever works. Like, literally, just do do you want to, like, sit down and force yourself to write words and then, like, there you go, you've got something? Or do you want to take more time to think and maybe, yeah, you write it in your notebook first and then you take it to your laptop and, you know, try and make it better or, like... Like I, th- I think it's just totally different, and as we're, we're all, you know, fingers crossed, going to have something published one day, and we'll yeah. have all approached it at very different. What word am I trying to take? We'll have taken very different journeys to get there, but we'll have all reached the same destination. Yeah. Can I just say as well, like advice-wise, I suppose I try to be quite active over on Twitter for the like writing community, it's called and stuff, mm-hmm. and. It's just for anyone else that's kind of asked you this question, obviously, and is like looking for advice about how to write. I'd say that obviously try a bunch of different ways, like try a bunch of different rituals, see what sticks, see what doesn't, see what works for you, but also just try and not get into that headspace where you're comparing yourself to others' progress. And I think it's so easy to do, but like, especially now that we're at home a lot more, I think a lot more people are on like social media and stuff and I think it's so easy to see what someone else is doing and be like, I should do that too. And they've written 100 pages today and I've literally written two words and kind of start to make yourself feel bad about it. And I think as well, there's a danger of turning it into a chore. You need to try and, Mm. you know, remember why you started it. Like, why are you writing it fundamentally? And do you enjoy writing? And just make it a fun thing again. Like, because I... I had quite a big gap in my writing of my own book for a while and I I felt really guilty about it. I was like, how can I say I want to publish a book if I'm not writing, you know? And I felt, that was like for a couple of months, but I just couldn't, I just wasn't in that frame of mind to write it. And then really I came back to it when me and Emily started doing our phone calls. That's been really beneficial for me is setting that up, but also as well just kind of remembering why I'm writing it, who I'm writing it for, and reminding myself that it's meant to be fun it's meant to be like a a fun thing you do that you do because you love it's not this yeah there's an end goal of being published and it all being proper and there's like a system for it but at the end of the day you're doing it because you love it so I think my advice to people is just to try and basically remember why you're doing it I was gonna add something really similar to that where I was just gonna say like I think that 
something that I did a lot when I was younger that is a danger and that I think there's a lot of danger of right now because dark academia is such a big trend. <laughs> Mm-hmm. don't don't romanticize being a writer romanticize yeah. Yeah. writing like romanticize the actual fun that you have when you're doing it but don't romanticize the image of yourself as a writer because it feeds your ego for like two seconds and then you'll just be overcome with imposter syndrome because I don't know like I I feel like for so long it was like you have to act like a writer yeah. And I'm like, like you, no, you don't. Just if you write and that makes you happy, you're you're a writer. Congratulations. And if you <laughs> if you intend to write but you don't really know where to start or what to do, then that's okay. And if you are writing something and then you've lost all inspiration and you need to take a very long break, you're still a writer. It's fine. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Don't pin, don't pin your whole identity on how many words a day you write. Yeah. It's a horrible path to go down. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I think like cuz I try and attend lots of author events and stuff and they always get asked like, "Oh, I want to be a writer. How do I do it?" And literally all of them just say, "Oh, just write. Like yeah. just write. That is it. Like that is the answer. It sounds so simple and I know it's harder than that, but you know, if you write something, you're a writer. You, what's the word I'm looking for? Like you've achieved it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. I think the best writing advice I ever heard was, if there's a story that you want to read, go and write it. But then there's also mm. the sense of when you're writing, don't write to be published. Like because I yeah. think if you start writing and you're like, right, I want to get this published later, you start thinking what other people might expect of it. And it kind of goes back to the creative writing thing mm. that Rebecca was saying earlier on, you know, that you are you start to kind of change yourself. Like, try and just, again, have fun with it and just sit and write for yourself. Write the story you want to see, the story that you wish you'd read when you were younger, for example. And don't write to be published, I guess. I think, like, it comes from that really toxic thing that loads of people have been talking about lately where like capitalism makes you think that you have to monetize all your passions yeah yeah like if you're not making money out of it or if it's not going to further your career it's not worth doing and like oh my god i hate that so much just to be clear the entire ethos of infatuated is that you can (laughs) you can just enjoy things come into (laughs) foolishness with us yeah that's why like i've talked about this on the podcast already but it's why i'm trying to find hobbies that are just like hobbies like they're creative but they're hobbies like it's why i've like tried to get back into painting and stuff like i'm not going to sell any paintings like no one wants to buy one of my paintings but it's like for me and obviously yeah like i'm trying to get published but yeah i'm still trying to hold on to the the fun of it yeah also like we're all going to die and it's not really going to matter if you were published or not so <laughs> like when you're dead you're not going to care if someone else liked your work you're going to care if you enjoyed writing it so uh... like just chill out guys Fine. Well, that's probably good not to end this section. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're all going to die. Have fun. Oh my god. But actually, I will just say if anyone does have any more specific writing questions, feel free to send them in. We will 
we will discuss them more but I think we've answered most of the questions we have been sent over the past few months. So Emily do you have a quick fire favourite for us today? I do. My quick fire favourite is a song recommendation. So I love a band called The Collection I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they are great. They have the most beautiful songs. And the other day, I found out that a couple months ago, they did an acoustic cover of a song from their 2018 album, Entropy. So the song is called Beautiful Life. And it's like, it's just a very lovely song about like basically having an appreciation for life, which, you know, good message. Mm. And... I, I love the original version. It's like, it's quite loud and it has lots of like layered vocals, but the new acoustic version just kind of lends itself really well to like this kind of song. It's very gentle and pretty, and they've added some female harmonies which like soften it as well. And I think my favourite lines are in the second verse, which goes, You do not have to be known, even the best of us have sometimes felt alone. This whole world is your home, so reach out your branches, let your roots down to the soil, and watch the rain help you grow. Oh, I love that. It's just really cute. I knew you'd like that bit because of the tree. (laughs) (laughs) It It reminds me of The Invisible Life of Adi LaRue. I was just going to say. Like Estelle and, yeah. But yeah, the song is just, it's just a very, very lovely song. I really like it. I like that they've done very gentle cover of it as well so recommend giving it a listen second verses for the win i know i love a second me verse. too they're the best ones who's <laughs> <laughs> who's going next stephanie you go next and tell us your quickfire favorite my quickfire favorite is a twitter account funnily enough oh and it is the spark notes twitter account now, oh my god, yes, so good. I know, if you love books and you love a guy just ripping into them, then the SparkNotes account is for you. I want to marry whoever runs I the SparkNotes account. Yeah. I need to know who's behind Safe. it. If anyone knows, let us know, but I'd love to, I'd love to know. <laughs> but basically, it's just some guy who's ripping into classic books, and I literally late at night sit scrolling through the timeline and just cackle to myself (laughs) and like my parents are like what are you laughing at so hard and I'm like this Twitter account and I'll read some like Pride and Prejudice joke and they look at me like you're so sad and I'm like (laughs) (laughs) but it's so funny if you know so anyone that's listening I presume you love books trust me yeah if you need something to put a wee smile on your face during lockdown Go and have a wee scroll of the Spark Notes Twitter account. You won't be disappointed. I love uh, an English literature meme. <laughs> oh, it's so good. <laughs> like, I always feel like I've levelled up in life when I get a new joke <laughs> on the Sparknotes Twitter. Like, I'll, have re- I'll, yeah. I'll read something and then I'll go to Sparknotes Twitter and I'll be like, oh my god, I get that now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all the, like, the Eliad and the Odyssey ones because I, like, I would never have known those but now that I've obviously read so many Greek mythology books is when I see those now, I'm like, oh, I get that. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see if, like, I can even... My wife Helen went to Troy and I'm going to make it everyone's problem. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like and oh there's one about it. honestly 
I could sit and I could talk about it for an eternity because it's the funniest thing. Like, rejected titles for The Great Gatsby, old sport, the novel, <laughs> just a ton of foreshadowing. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Women only want one thing, and it's to escape from the secret room on the third floor and set fires. <laughs> yes. Such a good that. Such a good account. Oh. oh, thank you for sharing that. You're That's so, so welcome. <laughs> so good. <laughs> thank me later, listeners. Can I just say that all but, the American and Canadian listeners that we have are going to absolutely <laughs> adore your accent. Oh, because I'm, you yeah. you've got an even thicker West Coast accent <laughs> than either of us. I'm so yeah. I'm really trying to make it like understandable because sometimes I go too Western and my mum's like, "You're going on a podcast." I'm like, "Uh huh." She's like, "Good luck to them." And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry if I've been too Glaswegian. No, no. <laughs> I just oh I've I've missed it and I just think it's going to be such a highlight. People, are oh, love thank it. you. Yeah. <laughs> okay Rebecca what's your quickfire favourite my quickfire favourite is another TV show shock because that's all <laughs> I do now is watch TV it's new on Netflix it's called Firefly Lane so it stars Catherine Heigl and Sarah Chalk I kind of can't think of a bad role that I've seen either of them in before so I was intrigued with that anyway and they play best friends and journalists Tully and Kate. One is wild and fiery, one is sweet and sensible. It's a classic dynamic that we love to see. Um, <laughs> it follows them from their teenage years in the 1970s to their early career in TV news in the 80s to their middle age in 2003. So you have hippie fashion, 80s fashion, and Y2K fashion, it is a feast for the eyes. Um, <laughs> and the structure is quite similar to This Is Us. It has like the flashbacks in every episode. And the story is quite fast moving and quite emotional in the same way as This Is Us. So yeah, I'm really enjoying it. I would recommend it for anyone that wants like a like a really good get your teeth into it kind of TV series. Mm. Mm-hmm. Nice. It's great. Sounds it's good. very sweet okay so we have a question this week submitted by becky and she asks what's a book that you can read multiple times but still feels like a new experience oh good question my first thought surprise surprise is the starless sea (laughs) that is a shocker or to be fair like either of our books like because i've reread the night circus as well and i definitely found stuff in both of those on a second read i think i've read the night circus three times and i've always found something different but i just talk about them so much that i'm trying not to (laughs) talk about (laughs) them again but i don't know it's just i i love a story that is very that has lots of symbolism in it because it means that when you read it a second or third or whatever time you understand how the symbols work it's like its own kind of foreshadowing so i like a book like that anyway i'm trying to think of books i have read a lot of times i've read rebecca a lot uh, daphne du maurier and I feel like I always see, like, it's always just little lines mm. that I found again in that one. Very dark <laughs> lines that maybe on first read you'd kind of think, like, oh, she's just kind of 
talking about surroundings or whatever, but actually she's focused on something that is very important. Mm. I wouldn't say too many things, like any examples, but yeah, something like that. I don't know. See, my most read book ever in my life is Matilda, but I Mm. wouldn't say that I go back to that and find new things. I go back to that because I know exactly how it's going to feel every single time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I try to think, I'm not a huge re-reader. I don't really reread books that often, so I'm trying to think, apart from poetry, but I don't feel like that's the same. Because I could go back into almost any poetry book and it will be a different experience from the first time, because it just is. Yeah. But probably, like, a book that, like, haunts me and that I've never reread cover to cover, but I've always read, like, big chunks of it or chapters of it, and I've been like, whoa, now I see this differently, is The Bell Jar. By Sylvia Plath. Mm. Like, I can never remember the whole story of the Bell Jar, and it's not a long book. And it's not that it's not memorable, it's just that there's so much weird shit that happens that, like, every time that I open it, I could open it at a random page and I probably wouldn't remember the scene. And Mm. then I'd read it and I'd be like, whoa, yeah, that's a new angle. (laughs) (laughs) What is the Bell Jar, like, kind of roughly about I've only ever read Sylvia Plath's poetry and I've heard of the bell jar but I've never even broached it so what is it kind of first of all what I want to say is it's so much more approachable than you think it's going to be yeah it's like Rebecca where it's like a classic and that you think it's going to be like hard and then you start reading Mm. you start reading Rebecca and it's just like oh she's got social anxiety she's exactly like me (laughs) um the the bell jar is the same so it's about a girl who goes on an internship in New York and just kind of, it's just about her like figuring stuff out and not having a good time. Oh. Um, it's, Sell it's it har- to me. <laughs> um, it's hard to explain. It's it's about like her and all of her friends and like mm-hmm. she has this boyfriend that kind of comes in and out of the story and it's about her like mother it's just like a sort of drama mm-hmm. but it's quite autobiographical from Sylvia Plath's point of view so I could say that I could say it's the story of a girl like going to New York and having a summer and trying to figure herself out it is also the story of a girl trying to figure out how to kill herself yeah I was gonna ask because I studied Sylvia Plath in high school like all her poetry and you know we learned about her relationships and obviously her killing herself in the end and I I was always just a wee bit like I wonder if the bell jar is about her if it is quite autobiographical or if it's like if it's quite fiction no it's it's Mm. like it's extremely autobiographical but the the great thing that I love about the Bell Jar is that it's the most depressing story, and I was mm-hmm. not once depressed while reading it. Oh, like it's so mm. sad, it's so uh-huh. sad, but it's so lively when you read it that like yeah. you almost forget that it is a quest for this girl to kill herself. Mm. It is. It's got so much like life in it. I've just like shot myself in the foot because it's also a book that I also mention all the time. But when I reread the Shadowhunter books, oh, yeah. it was interesting because I I hadn't read them in years. I'm trying to think how many times I've reread them all. So I've I re I've read the Mortal Instruments, which is like the main kind of series twice. I've read the Infernal Devices, which was the second series three times, and then I've read the other series once. So like going all the way through it was interesting seeing all the connections I'd missed because for anyone who doesn't know like 
one of the series is set like oh I want to say 2008 ish one is set Victorian era one is set like 2012 ish I think but it's it's all family mm. lines so it's interesting seeing all the links and how they all link together so but I suppose kind of any series that branches off from one another would be a very interesting reread because you do kind of maybe miss connections that you wouldn't have mm. noticed before like if you literally just didn't know like who <laughs> they were talking about yeah but then you read you know the later series and you're like oh that's who they meant I think when I think of rereading books and kind of and it feels like it's the first time you know I can still enjoy it and read it cover to cover it's really funny mm. for me because I feel like a lot of people know that I love fantasy and dystopian books I like quite dark books but I don't find them dark but I love I love all that and I, t- I typically read a lot of dystopians in particular but what I find funny is that none of them make my reread list because for me my reread books that feel like the first time they're wholesome and it's such a different vibe so for me it would be Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen and I don't know why I love it so much but I've reread that countless times I take it on the holidays with me and I read it by the pool I read it when I'm feeling sad and cover to cover and I know the story so well I mean there's been so many movies that have they basically follow the same Pride and Prejudice storyline obviously because it's it spawns so many other films and books mm. and things that are all inspired by it. But I just, I love that. And also, and it's probably no surprise to anyone, but also Harry Potter for me. I mm. love rereading the Harry Potter series and love getting lost in that world again. That's kind of, for me, it's again, it's like a wholesome thing. I think when I think about books that I reread, they're, they're typically happier books and like wholesome ones if I'm looking for that bit of, escapism and I'm not really wanting to start a new book and focus in on a new world I always return to those two so Pride and Prejudice and Harry Potter I've actually only read Harry Potter all the way through once but Mm -hmm. I read I reread the first one quite often yeah and I don't Mm -hmm. I don't know why only the first one but when I finish the first one now it's like I just like remembering how that world opens up yeah yeah I find it just so like magical (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but then I don't I, I've never got the energy to go and like reread a whole series because I'm never that guy I think the rest of the Harry Potter books get a lot darker and a lot of people say that they love the first one so much because it is so wholesome and it's so like discovering magic and it's like you know like young kids exploring this castle and it's not too dark yet but then when you progress down the series it obviously becomes a lot more like they're growing up and as they mm-hmm. do yeah. so do the books so I think that's why a lot of people start and stop the philosopher's stone or like at least the first three i certainly mm. do as well like with the films and stuff i re-watch the first three all the time but i don't tend to watch the later ones that often because they do get the later ones are yeah. a bit shit, to be fair <laughs> yeah <laughs> like the adaptations are not as good as the first three adaptations were but anyway yeah i think as well like i only read it for the first time last year but i can see li- like little women becoming a big reread for me and it's the same thing it's mm-hmm. so wholesome and it's like I, th- I don't know I feel like rereads that have got good like grounding like when they've got morals in them when there's like yeah. a moral <laughs> of the story and even if it's old-fashioned mm. ones and I don't necessarily believe them anymore there's something really like 
just nice about someone going this is the way that life should be and this is this is what you should do and this is how you be a good person and I'm like this is way too simple but I enjoy it (laughs) it's interesting because I'm just like like I do have comfort reads but the, I quite like rereading mysteries because I like to see how they foreshadowed it. Yeah. Because you don't notice stuff like that on the first go, and then you reread it, and you're like, "Oh, that's how they told us." Yes, they're so smart. <laughs> I enjoy that. <laughs> I, I'm such a slow reader that I don't have time for that. I'd never read any new books if I did that. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good question. Though. Yeah. All right. That's that's all the parts. I know, wow. That is all the parts. (laughs) Thank you, Stephanie, for being our first guest. Thank you so much for having (laughs) me. I feel so honoured being the first guest. Oh, that's so nice. (laughs) I know, it was so much fun. Is there anything you're wanting to shout out while we're here? I have a blog that I sporadically update, I guess. So that's just my name, (laughs) stephaniecoatsier.com. And I have a Twitter, which is at wordsofcoatsier. Now... My surname, no one will ever be able to spell. I'll link it in the show <laughs> yeah, notes. Link it in the description. I'll link it below. Yeah, well, go ste- uh. check out Stephanie's blog and wait for that upcoming novel that we're all oh, eagerly yeah. anticipating. <laughs> novel, yeah. I'll post about that on my blog whenever it's eventually put together. Um, and you can ask Emily if it's any good so she can recommend it. It is. <laughs> she can recommend it. <laughs> But yeah, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Seriously, it's been loads of fun. And I was so excited for it. I woke up this morning dead early. Oh, <laughs> Like naturally as well. It was like Christmas and then I got nervous. But <laughs> and well, then I you was did like, very well. I was trying to do, yes. I was texting Emily like, I've literally been up for like three hours now looking at how to pronounce different words in Priory and I've given up. I'm sorry. If I butcher it, I butcher it. <laughs> <laughs> You did a very good job. You Thank did. you. <laughs> so that's us. Yay! <laughs> Huge round of applause for Stephanie being our first ever guest. Yay! Yes, and what a good first guest. I loved that episode. That was so fun. <laughs> So as Stephanie said, she's got a blog and social media and that is all going to be linked in the show notes along with everything that we normally link down there as well. Our social media, our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com and links to the infatuated mix is down there as well. And because I'm trying to remember to say this every episode, please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps us out. Yes, please, please do. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.